Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Entire Hebrew scriptures. It certainly is uh, no doubt the greatest event that is recorded for us in this portion of God's Word. Let me read for you, beginning at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Hineni, here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Hineni, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when he came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Hineni, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is just such a powerful passage. You can never get bored reading it over and over again or reflecting on how this story, how this event actually shaped up and what it might have looked like exactly to have been there and to observe Abraham and Isaac as they went up the mountain on this most, I would say, sacred occasion. This is an event that is continually reflected on, though the passage may not always be made reference to, especially as we get into the Brit Hadashah. Because this is the story of one who is offering or being offered in behalf of others. You know, it's very interesting. I've been reading rather extensively on this passage what the rabbis have had to say about it over the course of history. And it's interesting to note how there is a transformation of ideas that the rabbis reflect on. They start out by thinking of Abraham. After all, this passage focuses on Abraham. Isaac is only mentioned maybe two or three times, and he appears to be somewhat uh, neutral, or maybe that's not the right word, passive in what is transpiring. Right? He asks Abraham a couple of questions. Here's the wood. Here's the knife. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? But he is just a willing sacrifice, a willing offering, as it, is, as it, was, as it were. But the point is, the rabbis start out by focusing attention on Abraham because that's what the text focuses our attention on, right? The angel says, Abraham, Abraham. The Lord calls out to test Abraham. And so the focus of attention is on Abraham. And so the earlier writings of the rabbis focus on Abraham. But over time, there is this reflection on Isaac. Because Isaac is not an infant. He's not a child. The Hebrew word na'ar, take the lad, is a word that can refer to someone as old as 20 or 25. And most believe that he was probably around 25 years old or so. He was an adult. And so what the rabbis then begin to shift their focus and gaze upon is the willingness of Isaac. And because of his willingness to give up his life, this episode then moves into Jewish history as being a study of martyrdom. The willingness of individuals to give up their lives and to suffer, but now not merely for a cause, but for others, to suffer and die in the place of others. You see this particularly in the book of Maccabees and the story of the Jewish people as they resisted Antiochus Epiphanes during the story that has given rise to the festival of Hanukkah. 
But it seems to me that in the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, there was already a looking to what was happening in this event as a model, as a prefiguration of what the Messiah would do in giving his life for us as a willing sacrifice. Now, there are a couple of things I just want to draw your attention to. Number one, notice the three times there is the word hineni. Hineni comes from the Hebrew uh, word hine, which means behold. And the E ending is behold me. So we translate it as here I am. But technically or literally, the word means behold me. And so it is a word that comes up on a variety of occasions when God calls individuals to service. And their response is a hearty, behold me, here I am, what would you have me do? Isaiah is a great example because in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord says, whom shall I send? Isaiah in a vision is caught up into the very presence of God. And the Lord says, who will go for me? Whom shall I send? And and Isaiah lifts up his voice, Hineni, here am I, send me. By the way, Moses says the very same things. At the burning bush, when the bush is burning, not being consumed, and the Lord speaks to him, Moses responds, Hineni, here I am. And the Lord says, take off the shoes, the sandals from your feet. The ground you are standing upon is holy ground. And then he commissions Moses to go back to Egypt to bring redemption to the nation of Israel. Samuel is another one. Three times as a child, the Lord calls to him and he says, Hineni. And when he runs out the first time, he runs over to Eli and he says, did you call me? Eli says, no, I didn't call you. And he does this like two or three times. And then the third time, Eli says to Samuel, look, the next time, say, Lord, I hear you and I'm listening to your voice. And so when the Lord calls him again, he says, Hineni. And now the Lord commissions him as the first of the formal prophets of Israel. He becomes the first of the judges or the last of the judges and the first formal prophets established in Israel. But this word comes up three times. The Lord responds to the Lord twice and once to Isaac. And he says, behold me. He is ready in service. The other thing that's interesting about this passage is twice. It says that he and Isaac went together. They traveled together. You see this, for example, in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them Together, You see it again in verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. It was that phrase, both of them together, that led the rabbis to think about Isaac's part. Because while the attention is focused on Abraham, Isaac had a part too because the both of them went together. And it certainly looks forward to the redemption that would be provided by Yeshua, no? Because the Lord led by his father, both of them together. And that's why on the cross you hear the Lord say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both of them together are in the act of bringing about redemption and atonement for the sin, not only of the nation, but the sin of the world. It's interesting, too, here that when Isaac asks 
Abraham. Here's the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He simply says the Lord will provide himself a lamb. There are two ways of taking that verse in the Hebrew. It could be taken, the Lord himself will provide a lamb for us. Or it could be taken, the Lord will provide himself as a lamb for us. Both are true. The Lord would provide a ram caught in the thickets by its horn for Abraham in substitution for Isaac. But it's also true that the Lord would one day provide himself as a lamb, as God in the second person of the triunity, the son, the Messiah of Israel, would come into our world and give his life a ransom for many. So we have all of these images sort of circulating and interwoven together, and they all look forward to when Messiah would come, and all of the same elements come in to work together. The Lord as the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, essentially says, not my will be done, but your will be done. He is saying, he nanny to the Lord and giving his life a ransom for many. And as one who is led by his father till Golgotha, they, the two of them walk together. And that's why in Isaiah 53, it says the Lord was pleased to bruise his son, to set him to grief. The father looked down upon the earth and saw that salvation could be provided by his son. And so it pleased the Lord to offer his son. That's why it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's the imagery that we're seeing in this event. This event is a prefiguration. That's why the rabbis refer to it as the akeda, the binding. Isaac isn't actually sacrificed. In Christian traditions, oftentimes they refer to this as the sacrifice of Isaac. But in Jewish tradition, he's referred to, or it is referred to as the binding of Isaac. Both are really true, because when you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it says that Abraham, when he says to his servants who accompanied Abraham and Isaac on this journey, he says to his servants, wait here, I and the lad will go up the mountain, we will worship the Lord, and then we will return to you. It's always been quite a mysterious sort of phrase, because Abraham went up to slay his son. Why would he say, and we will return? Certainly they would not both return. But according to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, the writer tells us that Abraham knew that God would raise his son from the dead. Why would he raise his son? Because God had already promised Abraham that in your seed, he would multiply that, that his descendants. And he said it would be in Isaac that your descendants shall be multiplied. So Abraham's faith was of such a significant kind that he took God at his word, knew God had something in store for Isaac, and it couldn't be that he would be dying right now because Isaac would have to have some descendants for God to be faithful to his word. So the writer to the Hebrew tells us, Abraham knew that God would have raised Isaac from the dead. It's interesting that the writer to the Hebrews does not say, I, Abraham knew that God would not have him slay his son. He doesn't say that. Abraham was going to kill his son. 
Now, it's important that we understand, too, Abraham was not about to murder his son. God did not call Abraham to murder Isaac. He called him to offer him as a burnt offering. It would have necessitated his death, but he was not seeking to kill him out of some kind of malice. He was seeking to obey God in the necessity for an atonement for sin. It is rather an involved issue, and we can't go into it here, but nevertheless, the idea of a burnt offering is very different than simply murdering someone. But the point is, Abraham was going to obey God. He did not think God was going to stay his hand the last minute as it does occur. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, Abraham's faith and trust in God was of such a kind that he knew that God was a a man of his word, a God of his word. And that if he said, in Isaac shall your descendants be called, he knew Isaac had to have children. And therefore, Isaac could not remain dead. He would have raised him from the dead. And so he says to his servants, I and the lad will return. So in this story, even though he wasn't actually killed, in Abraham's mind, he was. And in that respect, there's a resurrection because he need not or he did not have to actually kill his son. These parallels are also interesting because we're told that Abraham, when he's called to go, it says that he leaves early in the morning, and then it tells us that after a three days journey, he is in the area of Moriah, and the mountain upon which he is to offer his son appears. Mount Moriah, as we find out from First Chronicles, I think it's chapter 3, is the mountain upon which Solomon will build the temple. So it's interesting that Isaac is being offered on the Temple Mount, or what would become the Temple Mount, which would be a place of untold numbers of burnt offerings that would be offered for sin. It's also interesting that the Temple Mount is in Jerusalem and that Messiah would give his life on Golgotha in Jerusalem outside the city gates. The parallels continue to just mount, and even as Abraham lifted up his eyes the third day, so it would be the third day of Passover that Messiah would rise from the dead, even as Isaac was both offered and rose from the dead. But then I learned of two other parallels that I wanted to focus our attention on in closing that were kind of neat to me. Because you know that the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek about 200 years before the time of Messiah, right? And that document that was translated into Greek is known as the Septuagint, the translation of the 70. It's, we say 70 because traditionally it is, we're told that there were 70 Jewish rabbis in Alexandria, Egypt, that were involved in the translating of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. They translated it from Hebrew into Greek because by that point in time, Jewish people were not, especially in the diaspora, were not speaking Hebrew. They may have been using Hebrew in the synagogue, much like today in America, a lot of Jewish people can read Hebrew and they can participate in the worship service, but they don't really know what they're saying. 
They're just reading Hebrew words. I learned how to read Hebrew that way because as a young boy going to Hebrew school, they wanted me to be able to enter into the synagogue to participate in the worship. And to do that meant I had to be able to read the Siddur, the Jewish prayer, prayer book, and to be able to recite the Hebrew. So I learned how to read Hebrew, but I couldn't understand the words that I was reading. It's much like anyone, if you teach them the alphabet, they can read any other language, but they may not be able to understand what the words mean. And so those are two different skills. And so in the ancient world, many Jewish people were no longer able to converse in Hebrew with one another, although in the synagogue they could enter and they could read the Hebrew manuscripts. So the rabbis were concerned that Jewish people had the Bible in Hebrew, could read it, but couldn't understand it. So they decided maybe it would be a good idea to put the Bible in a language that our people can understand. And since 200 years before the time of Messiah, Hellenism had spread throughout the then known world. Greek became the common language of the ancient world. It's one of the reasons why the New Testament was written in Greek. It's the common language of the people at the time. It's not written in Hebrew because most Jews didn't read Hebrew, let alone Gentiles. And so it was written in the language that was common for all peoples. It was written in Greek. And so 200 years before the New Testament even came into vogue, we had a Greek document, which was the Old Testament translated into Greek. And so when they came to these portions of Scripture, it's interesting to see the words that were chosen because it gives us an insight into how those Jewish rabbis understood the passage because they are telling us a Greek word. For example, in Isaiah 7.14, where it says, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, the Hebrew word virgin is the word Alma. It appears only seven times in the Hebrew Scriptures. But when the Jewish writers of the Septuagint translated the word Alma, they used the Greek word Parthenos, which is a word that means virgin. doesn't mean anything else. doesn't mean young woman. It means a virgin woman. So that gives us insight into how they understood the word Alma. They understood the word Alma not to mean a young woman, but rather a particular kind of woman who more often than not would have been a young woman, namely a virgin woman. And so they used the word that meant virgin. So we know that the most ancient Jewish understanding of Isaiah 7.14 is very different than how Jewish people understand it today in the modern world. Today, if you take a Bible translated by a Jewish society, publication society, or translation group, they are not going to translate Alma as virgin. It is translated young woman. But 200 years before Messiah, no, they translated it as virgin. So why do they not translate Alma as virgin? Because if they did, it would lead credence to the fact that Yeshua fulfilled Isaiah 7.14 and is the Messiah of Israel. And so there is an issue that has, in a sense, blinded, blinded may not be the right word, but in which they've made a choice not to be objective with respect to what the word means. And rather, they want to translate the word 
with regard to what they would want it to mean, not what it has been understood to mean throughout the centuries. Now, when you come to Genesis chapter 22, it's very fascinating to do the same thing. I want to show you just two passages as we close. If you look at chapter 22 and looking at verse 11, when the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham, it says, Then the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, that is the angel, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing, here's the phrase, you have not withheld, that's my translation, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, if you would, turn in the book of Revelation, uh, excuse me, to the book of Romans in the Brit Hadashah, and looking at Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, Many understand this maybe to be the greatest chapter in all the Bible. It has certainly perhaps what is the greatest verse in all the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua. I mean, that is just a great, a great verse, isn't it? But if you look at chapter 8 and looking at verse 31, after Paul writes of the blessings that we have in Messiah. He says, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's where we're headed. In order that he might be the firstborn. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's really interesting. All of those words are in the past tense, even the last one. Notice, Paul doesn't say, those he, he predestined, he also called, he also justified, and those he justified, he will also glorify. He doesn't say that. It's all in the past tense. So those he predestined, and those he called, and those he justified, he's already glorified us. It's already in the past. And so Paul puts that in the past because he's speaking about the certainty of our glorification because of the beauty and the grace that God has bestowed upon us by having already foreknown, predestined, called, and justified. That's all past as ones who believe in him. But the glorification is something we wait for. But Paul says, no, that too is so certain. Just like the prophets say things in the past tense, but it's all future because they're expressing the certainty in which the event is going to occur. But look what Paul goes on to say. So in light of this, these wonderful blessings that are ours, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's already given us his son, how could we ever expect that he wouldn't be giving us all things that he has yet in store for us? But here's the key thing. That phrase, look what Paul says. He who did not spare his own son. See, the question is, where did he get that line from? Well, he got that line from Genesis. So if you keep your finger there and look back in Genesis chapter 22, 
when the Jewish translators of the Hebrew Scriptures translated this passage into Greek, they used the same Greek word that's found in Romans 8.32, in which Paul writes, he who did not spare his own son is the same word found in verse 12. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not spared your own son your only son. That same phrase is the exact same phrase that Paul uses in Romans 8.32. Why does Paul use that phrase? Because when he reads Genesis 22, he sees it as a prefiguration, a looking forward to of what Messiah would do in that he would give up his life and his life would not be spared but would be given up for us all. And he looks to the event of the offering of Isaac, and he says, that's what Messiah has done for us as well. So when he wants to speak about the results of it, he uses the same word the angel uses. Blessing on you, because you did not spare your only son. And Paul says, how could God withhold anything from us when, his fa- when our father did not spare his own son. It's supposed to trigger our thoughts back to the offering of Isaac. But there's another phrase or another term that's used here that is equally remarkable to me. It occurs twice. If you look at chapter 22 of Genesis, he says, after these things, God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, the word only in Hebrew is the word yachid. It is not the word echad for one. Hebrew has different words for one. Echad is really the word one, which is a unity. That's why that word is used for God over and over again. We said the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Yachid. No, we didn't say Yachid. We said Adonai Echad. So that's the word for unity, a oneness that is of a unity. Now, how do we know that? Because it's used in other places that way all the time. For example, in Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 3 or chapter 2, where the Lord says to Adam, you know, that a husband shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they are to become one flesh. He says one flesh, the word is echad. They are to be united as a unity. They don't lose their individualities. They don't cease to be two distinct persons. They're still two distinct persons, but now they are echad. They are united, and they become one in that sense. It's the same word that's used in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is told to take two sticks prophetically, and he speaks about the reunification of the nation of Israel. The, the southern tribe or kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And he says, on one stick, write the word Judah. On the other stick, write the word Israel. Put them together in your hand and they shall become one. He uses the word echad. He doesn't mean they cease to lose their individuality as nations. 
They continue to be reflected as 12 distinct tribes, two of which united under Judah's banner, 10 of which united under Israel's banner. But the two distinct entities become united once again, and that will be under the auspices, the rulership of their one king, the Messiah of Israel, when he comes and he reigns. He unites the kingdom, and thus they become one, Echad but not yachid. The word yachid is a little different. It can be understood in two distinct ways. The word yachid, oftentimes, for one, it can mean unique. And so in the Brit HaDashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, you see the word monogenes. Mono means one. Genes comes from a Greek word, genao, to be. And so monogenes means one being. Another way of saying one of a kind, unique. And that Greek word, monogenes, is oftentimes translated into English as begotten. And so we read it as being, uh, thinking about it being born, but that's not what the word begotten comes from. The word begotten is a translation of the word monogenes, which means unique. So when you see Yeshua is referred to as the begotten Son of God, it means the unique Son of God. It doesn't speak about his birth. It speaks about his uniqueness. That's one way the word yachid is used. But it's used another way by the rabbis, depending on the context. Now look again at Genesis chapter 22. He says, take your yachid son, your only son. We might think unique. But the next phrase changes the thoughts of the rabbis. Look what they say. What he, it says, whom you love. Now, when, they, when Yahid and love are next to each other, Yahid was translated into Greek by the Jewish translators with the word agape. I think it's the word agapitas, which is the word beloved. So now, the way they translated your only son they said, take your beloved son, the son whom you love. So when the Jewish translators translated Genesis 22, both here in the beginning of the verse and at the end, because you did not withhold, the angel says, you did not withhold your son, your only son. They translated it, you did not withhold your beloved one, the one whom you love. Now, the reason that's important is because whenever you read in the Brita Shah, the beloved son, it's the same word that's used here. And you know where it comes up? It comes up in two interesting places. In Matthew chapter 3, when John the baptizer is immersing Messiah, says that he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove, and then a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And when you go to Matthew chapter 17, you'll see the event of the transfiguration of Messiah, where he's transfigured in all of his glory. And Peter, James, and John are on that mountain, and then the voice says a cloud overshadow them. 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Now it's interesting there, something is added. The beloved son is not only one who is beloved in that he has a special relation to the father, but he also is one who is given authority. Hear him. In his beloved state, he is given as an offering for sin, like Isaac. In his authoritative state, he will reign as king, and we are to hear him, we're to listen to him. In other words, we're to obey him. When he appears on the Mount of the Transfiguration, he's not forgotten as the one who has given his life, although he hadn't given his life yet. He's the beloved son. But on the Mount of the Transfiguration, he's glorified in all of his glory. When will he be so glorified? When he returns at his kingdom. And since he's in his glorified state, he has an authority he had not possessed before. For now, he has authority as a king. Hear him. Listen to him. But when he's in his beloved state prior to his exaltation, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Why is he well pleased? Because in his beloved state, he's going to be giving his life a ransom for many, even as Isaac prefigures that. So it's kind of cool, isn't it? The same Greek word that the rabbis use for yachid is the Greek word that the New Covenant Scripture writers use to denote his belovedness. It's like they get it right out of the Septuagint. It's like they were reading the Septuagint. They read about the offering of Isaac. Take your beloved son. And they looked at Yeshua and they said, this is the beloved son that Isaac is prefiguring, the one whose life is given in our behalf. And the one who would be raised and in his return will be glorified and will be the one with all authority over heaven and over the earth. In Genesis 22, the prefiguration is clear. The Lord would provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And so the Lord has provided that lamb for you and I. And during this season of Rosh Hashanah, And during this time of repentance and reflection, our first order of business is to remember who our Messiah is. He is the beloved Son of God, even as Isaac was the beloved son of Abraham. In a sense, Messiah is the greatest beloved son of Abraham, even as he is a descendant of Abraham and David, as we read the genealogy in Matthew. And as the one who is the beloved son of God, he gives his life willingly like Isaac did on his altar, but he gives his life willingly. And unlike Isaac, he gives his life a ransom for many. And that ransom saves us and transforms us. And so for those of us who know the Lord, this is a time of prayerful, a time for prayerful reflection that the Lord by his spirit would transform us and conform us and make us more like his son. For those who are yet to trust him, this is the opportunity to believe in him and to have 
eternal life. And that's why we have such a great privilege, really, during this era to be about harvesting, right? And we talked about that Wednesday night, to bring the good news to all peoples that they may find life through his name. So let's pray. The worship team can come forward and the ushers can get ready. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning of worship and praise. We thank you for the marvelous faith of Abraham, who because of his trust in you and belief in your word, was ready to offer up his son, to give up his son, knowing, Lord, that you would have returned him by resurrecting him from the dead. And yet what Abraham did had even greater significance because it looked forward to what Messiah would accomplish by giving his life a ransom for many. For God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And thus, how will he not give us all things if he's given us everything we already need? which has been given to us and provided for us in his son, his beloved one, who loves us with an unimaginable love that can bring salvation full and free, not only to our hearts, but to the ends of the earth. So, Father, I pray for everyone that is here, everyone that's listening online, Lord, our prayer is that they might find you as Savior and Lord and that we who have so found you would experience the transformation that only you can provide by your grace and by your spirit. And so, Lord, may you be blessed, we pray. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.